I think sometimes the tools that we use to navigate our environments limit us in a way. They make us more comfortable. They help us be more efficient. Mm-hmm. But then we, when we travel, we have to relearn the systems in a way that makes us open to life in a childlike way. And that's cool. with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is the latest remix of my online book discussion of The Vagabond's Way, which has been taking place each month since the beginning of this year. I've actually been saving this one ever since it was recorded back in April, since it covers the early days of a journey, and this seemed like an appropriate theme as the summer travel season gets into full swing this month. As it happens, I'm traveling in Europe right now, and I'll be on the road through the end of the summer. Once again, the chat is hosted by the English writer Luke Richardson, who moderated the Zoom conversation amid his own train trip across Europe earlier this year. Together, the book club participants and I talk about the excitement of visiting a place for the first time, and how that excitement never really ends, even when you're an experienced traveler. We talk about how culture shock creates a real kind of anxiety on the road and how getting past it is one of the most essential parts of cross-cultural travel. We talk about how travel can make you feel like a little kid again and how travelers attract interest and sympathy in a way that can restore your faith in people. We mention the month of March quite a bit since we're discussing the chapters from the March section of The Vagabond's Way, though these topics can apply to most any time of the year. We start by talking about how, as an author, I prepare for these online book clubs. Let's listen in. Have you been reading this along with you, with us, Rolf, to remind yourself, remind you of what you actually wrote in this book? <laughs> Probably not as as in the same manner that you guys have, because I, I wrote it, you know. Actually, yeah. I, have, I have several level, levels of experience when I read this. Sometimes I read it and I think about the travel experience I describe, and sometimes I think about what was happening when I wrote the chapter. And so what I do before each of these sessions, I go through and I review the month in question. So... Um, I have, yeah. So basically, the hour an hour ago, I just read through March and <laughs> and uh, had a, had a nice time interacting with some of these things. And uh, it's fun, but it's less than less a day by day thing than sort of uh, crashing my homework right before I join up for these monthly sessions. Yeah, it must be funny because the books I've written, I, I there's such a long process between you penning those words and the reader Mm. having them that quite often there's a bit of a disconnect isn't there people say to you this is amazing i've got this and you're almost like oh i wrote that ages ago i've written loads of things since then you know you don't it's hard sometimes to remember exactly what you said is what i suppose i'm saying well my my (laughs) most popular book is vagabonding which i wrote which was published 20 years ago and so i'm very used to this you know that i've i'm proud of all my books but people love vagabonding so much that I've uh, not that it was that much of a struggle, but I've come to peace with the idea that people are going to talk a lot about something I wrote a long time ago, and that's fine. It's a, it's it's a blessing to to have to talk about a book that you wrote a long time ago for the simple people for the simple reason that people reacted to it, and, uh, <laughs> and and hopefully the same thing is happening with this book. And in fact, reviewing the March chapters, I just I I just sort of enjoyed. In a way, writing the book was not just thinking about my uh, physical journeys, but my intellectual journeys, because obviously I'm a travel writing nerd. And uh, so just all of just sort of looking uh, at travel through the eyes of a Galician nun from, you know, the, the fourth century was was fun to recall. And, you know, I remember where I was when I read um, Agaria's travels. So uh, it's 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 been fun uh, at many at many levels for this. So March um, this month sort of was a bit of a step change, wasn't it, in, in, in the Vagabond's way? This is the month where we actually strap on our backpack and we and we 
you know, get boots to the ground, as it were. We get out on the road. It, it is, it is. And uh, it, it was funny rereading some of these chapters, you know, for example, writing about the excitement that comes when you first start the trip, just so that an ineffable sense of joy that you have. I felt that recently. In, in a certain sense, I'm a grizzled old traveler. But when I was in the Faroe Islands uh, last summer, the first time I'd been there, when, when we flew out of the clouds, my wife and I, we flew out of the clouds to the one airport in the Faroe Islands. I was just so excited. I was a kid again. And that's, I think travel keeps delivering that again and again and again. I do love that, actually. And that I was going to, that was one of the things I wanted to discuss with you, actually, because you talk about that first day of an adventure. And this is actually March 1st. I've got it written down here in front of me. March 1st, you talk about the excitement of that first day of the adventure. Um, now, I feel, though, that that is absolutely true, but that has changed, I think. I, re I remember that first trip I took, and for me, it was the first trip to India, um, and I've written about this many times, and it was it was. The, the, that, that sort of whirlpool of emotions driving out of the airport, seeing Asia for the first time, seeing this, 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 these cultures for the first time. And I've never quite had that quite the same. You know, it's never quite happened. So my question to you, I suppose, is how has, how has that excitement changed over your travel career so far? Is it as raw? Is it as, is it as exciting as it once was? Or has it changed a little bit? Is it, is it different? I don't know. <laughs> I think it always changes in in small ways. And I think actually there's so many aspects to the travel experience uh, that compose the travel experience. Like I, one of these chapters was about uh, taking airline flights and how we sort of become jaded to airline flights. I remember being still in my 20s. I was on a flight with, a, with like a woman in her 40s. It was her first flight. I think it was out of Salt Lake City. And she was just so excited. And at first I thought, why is she so excited? This is an airplane, you know, come on. And it's like, then when she told me that she hadn't been on a plane before, it was just just like watching the the ground recede beneath her was new to her, and and I I I was sort of chastened because I realized that there are aspects of travel that are brand new to people that we've sort of stopped seeing, and so mm -hmm. like when I I was talking about how excited I was to land in the Faroe Islands. I loved watching the islands come into view from the plane, but the plane ride itself was, I was jaded to, right? So mm. um, I, I think I can never really compete with like my first airplane flight. I remember I was in junior high school. I took the, like the class trip to Washington DC with my, with my middle school classmates and I was just dazzled by everything. And so I think there are some things that, I also talk a lot in the March about smell, how, how like smelling a place is just yes. completely knock you sideways in a way that you can't even prepare for. And I think that like landing in a, in, a, in a tropical country doesn't have the power that it used to because I'd never smelled a tropical country before. It was a brand new human experience to, to walk outside and smell sort of that tropical rot and richness of the air. And so I think sometimes it catches you by surprise. Again, I just, I felt like I'd been born again for no particular reason. I was just excited to be in the Faroe Islands last summer. I, this, there's this treeless landscape in the middle of the North Atlantic. And I was just so excited that I had uh, nine or 10 days there. Um, yeah. So I think so sometimes it's not even something you can count on. You get caught by surprise. There's aspects of travel that just completely surprise you. And actually, I would be interested once we get into the general chat to hear what kind of experiences uh, our participants today have been surprised by, what fun aspects of travel continue to surprise them even as they have become experienced travelers. On, on March the 3rd, and this is something that I suppose links to that first one, you talk about culture shock, which is something that I certainly realise in hindsight that I had experience on that first trip that I mentioned a little while ago. Is there a particular time that you mentioned this? I know that, that, that you 
experienced this yourself and how did that sort of manifest itself because it's not always a pleasant thing in the moment is it it's it's great afterwards but it's not like type one fun it's not fun it's a bit scary actually shock is a good word for it (laughs) yeah yeah no this happened to me uh truly when i moved to korea and i wasn't just I, i was going it was the first time i'd really used my passport i'd been to canada and mexico barely but I went overseas to Korea to, to teach uh, English for a year. And when I first landed there, I just felt anxiety. I felt sort of depression. And I I just really felt like why I felt a little bit judged by Korean people. Like they weren't acting in the way I thought that they, that they would act in a similar situation. And I realized actually it was, it was an interesting balance because the anxiety I felt was much more powerful than I expected. And it, it, it is a kind of anxiety but then once I got past it, once I realized that, hey, my culture isn't the only culture in the world, and there's there's systems by which actually Koreans are showing me a lot of respect and enthusiasm, and what is a mystery to me is just how they, they've always lived their lives, and it was just so exciting to break through that. And and so I know like Rick Steves, I'm not sure if I quote him in that in that chapter, but Rick Steves write, writes about this a lot in a really smart way. That uh, culture shock is is just a real thing, and it's not something that people are doing to you. That's that's an assumption. Yeah. It's like why 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 don't Koreans like me? No, actually, Koreans are just living their lives, and you're the stranger in a strange land. Once you realize and move through that culture shock, um, it's such a reward. I, I remember that depression I felt was offset by just excitement that I was discovering new things in new ways. And that's another thing I'm curious when we open it up, if other people have had experiences where they had culture shock, where they felt really bad and they broke through it. Because one cliche about Korea uh, is that a lot, of, a lot of young people got jobs there because the economy was bad in Canada, for instance, for example. But a lot of young people would would leave after less than a month. And I was that was so disappointing to me because actually things started to get good for me after about a month. And not everybody's going to be traveling for a month and not everybody's going to be committing to teach in a foreign country for a year. But versions of that can happen to us as travelers, even if we travel to a place for four days, you know, or, or a couple of weeks or something, um, that you can feel like, like this environment is doing things against you when in fact, nope, it's just culture shock. And it's something that you'll get over once you get your, your, your feel for a place. Yeah. It almost, it, it, it inspires some self-reflection, doesn't it? Because it requires you not only to look at the place, but yourself in the place and your your own reflection of yourself in that place. You know, Korea was there whether or not you went. It didn't matter whether you were there or not to anyone other than you. The Koreans had their thing. No one was looking for you. No one asked you to be there except you turned up anyway. You know, and there you were. And actually, in, a, in, in our westernised cultures where things are very... I'm the center of this. This is me. This is what I'm doing. It, it is a bit of a throwback, isn't it? It's a bit of a it's a bit of a twist, you know, a mental twist to go through. It's the thing I talk about. Uh, I use this example a lot. Well, I just I didn't realize that Korea was. I didn't. I realized how weird American individualism is when I went to Korea, and none of them had instincts. Like I was trying to explain individualism. I looked it up in my Korean English dictionary, and my students are like, "Ooh, individualism!" Like it's sort of a pejorative word in Korea because Korea has a more collective society. People they really rely on their systems of family and community, and individualism is seen as a betrayal of the relationship network that they have with other people. And I think there's certain advantages in individualism. I think, you know, I'm I'm a happy American individualist, but realizing that it's not square one for most people was an important lesson for me. And it really helped me get over my culture shock and, and enjoy the culture. And really it helped me be more empathetic with the Koreans who are around me because that's where they were coming from. And actually a lot of Koreans, they were excited to hang out with me because it allowed them to, to uh, 
exercise the individualist part of themselves, you know, that yes. in certain situations, actually one of them was uh, my housewife students, like women, there, there's sort of a, a patriarchal nature to Korean, there's a patriarchal nature to all cultures, but Korean culture in particular, um, they weren't allowed to express themselves in Korean in ways that they could in English. So my Korean uh, uh, housewife students um, loved debating and arguing and, and having these intellectual conversations in English because there was no, there's no verb forms that limit what they can say. Uh, as a woman speaker in Korea. And so it was really interesting to sort of have uh, a foot in my own culture, but then also this Korean culture that I was beginning to understand and realize that there were parts of my own culture that appealed uh, to Koreans because it gave them permission to do things that they couldn't do within their own culture. Yeah, that's it. And I love that, that idea that you are a benefit on your travel adventures as well. It's a symbiotic sort of partnership between you and the people that you connect with on the road. So yeah, that's really so uh, on March the 6th, and I was particularly interested by this one, you talk about how travel brings us into a child's mind. And I really love this, uh, this idea. And what was particularly exciting about this for me is I had to stop reading the chapter. So at this point, I was on the train from Munich to Innsbruck. And just as this chapter came up, the first of the Alps appeared on the horizon, these giant wow. snow-capped monoliths. Uh, the south of Germany is very, very flat. And then all of a sudden, these mountains rear up. And I was just like, this is what he's talking about. You know, it was just a perfect timing of, of the child. You know, I live in England where the highest mountain is, is not very high at all in comparison to those and some of the, and the ones you have over the, over the pond as well. So for me, it was very incredible. And I experienced that sort of child's, um, that sort of child's mind as well. Now, my question is, I suppose, do you experience this only with new places or do you have this for familiarity and places that you have a prior sort of understanding of too? I think it can happen uh, in places you're more familiar with. Again, it's you sort of have to surprise yourself. You sort of have to wait for these experiences. I said before that my wife and I read Mary Oliver poems to each other in the morning. In fact, we just did today. She's very much, her poetry is very much about nature and about what you see when you wait in nature. Like this morning's poem was about a water snake and other poems <laughs> are about birds. And like, if you're just rushing through life, nature is going to be hiding from you. You know, it, it's not until you sit still in certain situations that you can have that childlike relationship with nature. And I remember being six years old and just sort of sitting in my backyard, looking at bugs in a way that I haven't since, right? So yes, I think it is something you can ha that can happen at home. I think the reason it happens more as travelers is because we're just unfamiliar in these new environments. Bill Bryson mm. had a, a great quote about how you, you you don't really know about the traffic and you can't read the signs. And going back <laughs> yeah. to Korea, I remember when I was in Korea, one way that I sort of came to terms with my culture shock was learning Hangul, which is the Korean alphabet, which is phonetic. It's a very logical phonetic alphabet. And I remember riding the buses and just thinking, Let's too long. Let's too long. Restaurant. That means restaurant. I was so excited. I was like a kid learning to read again. And uh, so I think actually this is another thing that people can talk about. They're like kid-like experiences they've maybe had. These can be anxious situations because you don't, just like when you're a kid, you don't have the same vocabulary. This is another reason why I like hanging out with kids when I'm in mm. countries where I don't speak the language because they don't really care about articulation. They just want to play games. Um, yeah. So there's there's a there's a manifold ways through which travel can really force you back into this childlike world because you you have fewer tools in a place where you don't know your way around and you're sort of figuring things out you're you're starting over and that beginner's mind is it's just it's just such a gift it's a, it's a really yes. it's a really raw i think sometimes 
the tools that we use to navigate our environments limit us, limit us in a way. They make us more comfortable. They help us be more efficient. Mm-hmm. But then we, when we travel, we have to relearn the systems in a way that makes us open to life in a childlike way. And that's cool. That's right, isn't it? Because if you get the bus at 9.45 every day, you know you're going to be there at 9.45. You're not going to see the sunrise at that particular place. And if you go there at 8.45, it'll be completely different. You know, the sun will be coming in a different way. There might be this and that and whatever. Just mixing it up and changing things, I suppose, offers a completely different angle to an experience. It does. And I recall this is a USA uh, travel experience in particular. I took the bus to Disneyland from Whittier with my mom when I was 15. And we were just we were just completely incompetent in riding the bus. We weren't used in, in Kansas. We didn't have public transportation. We just drove our cars. And so we were so clueless that all these grizzled Los Angeles people just thought it was charming that these two Kansas people were lost. And they sort of <laughs> took care of us from bus to bus. The driver and the passengers were like, you know, have fun at Disneyland. And then we came back. It's like, well, this 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 corner is sort of dangerous, so you be careful. And I'm going to radio the driver and keep an eye out for you. And it's funny how uh, people keep an eye out for children, right? But they also keep it out for travelers. That sometimes just being completely incompetent will really um, create um, some empathy and some involvement from the people around. Because I think people like to help people. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And I think actually people are. Um, there's a sense of pride when someone comes to invest time in seeing your neck of the woods, isn't mm. there? A sense of pride yeah. in someone coming to, to see what you, the place that you live and you call home. And I think, I think we can, it's easy for us to underestimate how that feels. Like whenever I talk about Nottingham and someone's been there, I'm like, we spoke about it last time. Not many people have, um, yeah. you know, but when I hear, hear someone has, I'm like, yeah, that's amazing. That's great. It might even be the same as going, you know, a trip to Kansas. I, I don't imagine it's one of the, you know, one of the top, top, 10 list of places that people visit within the US. So when you find someone that's there, you, you think oh, amazing. <laughs> no, it's, and, I'm, I'm, and I apologize in advance if I annoy people. Anybody who's been anywhere to Kansas, I, I like will corner them and say, tell me about it, you know, because they've seen a place, you know, maybe that I know a little bit better. And so I'm curious to know mm. what they think and and how they were treated. And, and it's really fun to uh, to see my home through the eyes of visitors. Yeah. And you also find the same when you find someone feel the same, I suppose, when you find someone away who's from your home place. So yeah. that sense of real excitement that you can tell them about the deli on the corner of such and such street because, you know, and they know what you're talking about. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so on well, March the 9th, this was another one I absolutely loved. You talked about the golden age of travel being right now. And I suppose right now could be any time in which this book is picked up, which is the wonderful thing of being a writer, isn't it? You don't know when right now is when the reader is, mm-hmm. has got that. Um, but I feel the truth about this is that I think you've got to work a little bit harder for that, though, haven't you? Because travel destinations always change and we as travellers always change. So you've got to work out which one connects with which one. You know, uh, an example of this, I, w- I visited Albania for the first time last year and everyone told me when I was there or who'd been there was like, oh, it, it's, it's like Greece of the 1990s. Mm. before it was developed into the tourist hub that it is today now if i was looking if i was looking for greece of the 2020s i'd have been very disappointed because it wasn't like that but if i was looking for greece of the 1990s i would have been bang on we use those points of comparison to make sense of where we are it's like oh here's out Al- here's albania it's maybe not as efficient as greece but wow you you have people villagers driving cattle up the trail in a way that you don't see in greece anymore i think the reason i brought this up in the book is that sometimes people they will um, they will pretend to be disappointed in the place as it is because it doesn't live up to their fantasies of that place. Yes. And, and then this really, you know, like 
I sort of idealized the 1970s, the hippie trail travelers when I was on the road in the 1990s, um, when in fact, actually the 1990s was sort of awesome. And now young travelers are sort of sentimental for the 1990s when there were no smartphones and you just used guidebooks to get around and uh, you, you, ha you had a lot more challenges. And so I think sometimes one way we can cheat ourselves out of really embracing a place is to pretend that it was air quotes better uh, at an earlier time and that we're mm. not we're not um and that somehow we, we feel bad because it's not 1970 or 1999 when in fact yeah this place as it is 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 how it is and if all the if all the people in sumatra are looking at their smartphones and taking pictures of each other on their smartphones and and um you know wearing anime t-shirts or whatever seems not authentic to that place well that's how that place actually is you know that sometimes we can we can trick ourselves into having a less enjoyable experience because we think this place is is too modern or it's changed too much or it's too efficient or, or people are too much live too much like we live back home and so that this is sort of about giving yourself permission to realize that someday people are going to look back on this moment and think wow you know, I, I wish that I could go back to April 5th, 2023, because those were the good old days, right? I think it's just human nature to idealize past times. And so I'm trying to encourage people to embrace the joy of today. And I love that. I love that idea. Uh, I really do. I wonder what your what your thoughts are then to sort of flip that on its head a little bit and, and think about that within within cuisine, because I'm always, I was, I used to be frustrated that everywhere I went, there was a Burger King or a McDonald's or a Starbucks or a, or a Costa or whatever thing you have. And I used to go out of the way to try not to have that thing and try and have something that I could, that I perceived in my narrow mind to be more local, you know, and then I would get frustrated about the Italian restaurants in India or about the, you know, the Mexican restaurants mm. in Dubai or the so-and-so. And, -so and, -so. Uh, and actually it's pointless because in England, there are loads of restaurants from all around the world. And I love that because I love international cuisine how do you deal with that on the road Has, is that a frustration of yours or are you very much like the way you've just described this is the way it is and I'm just here to observe and, and that's that's wonderful well it, it's a mix because as you were talking you know Starbucks and Burger King well that's that happens right here in north central Kansas you know they, <laughs> it's like there's actually a good taqueria around the corner maybe I should go there there's an there's an Asian place there's a great barbecue that's locally owned and so I think always you're going to be sort of going up against global culture versus local culture and I think you can indulge in both I, I would go when I first went to McDonald's as an early traveler I always feel guilty about going to McDonald's because I felt like I was you know cheating or something then I realized McDonald's in Egypt is sort of unique to Egypt. I mean, you know, McDonald's mm. in, in Korea and other places are different than they're going to be. Sometimes they have different foods than they are going to have back home. In and fact, I, you quote this, sorry to interrupt, you quote this, don't you, from Pulp Fiction, the, yeah. the, the, the monologue about the quarter pounder and yeah. cheese from Paris or something like this. <laughs> exactly. No, I'd, I'd forgotten I quoted that. Yeah, but he, yeah, the the hitman is like, I got a beer in, in McDonald's. It's, it's amazing <laughs> in Paris. And, and that's a fun thing to see. And, and one thing, not to make this all about Korea, but when I was in Korea, I was so excited that a Mexican restaurant opened up. I, I loved Korean food. To this day, I love Korean food. But I went to this Mexican restaurant and it was so interesting to see the Korean spin on Mexican food because it was the first Mexican restaurant in Busan, South Korea. And they didn't quite get it right. But the way that they sort of cheated with Korean ingredients was 
made it as Korean as it was Mexican. And so <laughs> I think sort of looking into these complexities, like if you do end up at, at a Walmart, you know, in, in some place where you'd rather be in a more local place, just see how is it different? Like I, when I was in Korea, I went to H Mart, which was sort of like the Korean version of Walmart. Now I think now Korean pop culture is big around the country. H Marts are actually showing up in other cult- cultures. They see, feel like a Walmart, but they're actually a Korean invention. And so the world is so complicated with globalization that you can find a really complex cultural experience, uh, even in a place that might seem insipid, like a Burger King or a Starbucks, just as long as you keep your eyes open. And you don't want to go to Starbucks 10 times a day when you're in Paris, right? Because they have good coffee uh, on their own terms. So mixing it up and not being a snob one way or another, I think. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And I like it. And sometimes a bit of home is <clears throat> for a weary traveler. If you've been on the road for a few days, a couple of weeks, you know, a burger and a chips when you've been eating Chinese food for 14 days, there is nothing wrong with that. No one is going to complain about, about and so, that. And sometimes it's a real treat. And you, and you know that Chinese people do it when they come to the US or to Europe. You know, there's always there's always cheap foods. And so that, that's another yeah. thing. When we go to general discussion, I'm curious to know if anybody's had any um, epiphanies in the Burger King in Dubai type things, just because sometimes it's it's fun to think about how complicated and complex global culture can be. So I really liked your, there were a couple of things, and this is what I want to ask for personal, like selfish reasons, really. Um, on March the 17th, you compare yourself to a travel, to a travel, a man who's hiking thousands of miles whilst travel generally. And, um, and I'm interested to know how your travel journaling takes place. Do you write um, like a full essay? You're there, you're either using some like beautiful moleskin leather bound thing on the train, you know, or is it probably uh, on the back of beer mats or napkins that you've picked up from whatever bar? Or do you write on your phone? Do you have a dictum? I, I wonder, I don't know what's, what's under the hood of the Rolf Potts <laughs> sort of writing. <laughs> well, the, the answer, <laughs> Luke, is process. yes. Everything you mentioned, I do. So yes, I do all that. And it's funny, um, when I first started traveling in earnest, and again, this is 25 years ago, um, I, I, I tried to keep a detailed travel journals, and I did. But I realized that as I was also becoming a travel writer, that my journal was getting in, in, it was sort of competing with the notes I was taking as a travel writer. So um, yes, I write on napkins, but I would consolidate everything into sort of a moleskin type book, which I still have. But the phone is so useful. Like I, 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 I tried to resist the convenience of the phone, but it's just... So now I use photos, I use audio notes, I use phone notes, I use all sorts of things to feed into my journal. And I've talked about this on my own podcast with uh, Lavinia Spalding. She's wrote a great book called uh, Writing Away, which is about journals. And she's a big fan of the physical journal, and I am too. But I usually end up dumping it into my laptop um, just because uh, it's because as a travel writer, it's the source of so much, and it's easier to organize, you know, twenty-five to thirty years of journals when when I have them on my computer. So travel writing has sort of turned me into a digital travel journaler, and I journal during day-to-day life too. I wrote my journal this morning. Um, so yeah, I don't think there's any there's any right or wrong way to keep a journal, but I think it's a great way to keep a conversation with yourself because the guy I think you were quoting, Patrick Lee Firmer, he wrote a, he walked across Europe when he was like 18 years old, and but he wrote that book. He walked across Europe in the 1930s. He wrote that book in the 1970s. But uh-huh. if you read that book that was written by a much older man, you feel the excitement of a teenager because his I think his journals really captured that excitement, and so. That's why, especially on your early journals, keeping that journal of, of that excitement when 
you are really traveling like a child and discovering things for the first time, it's a great record of where you've been. And that's almost mm. its own, that's almost its own book club, you know, a tra- the travel journal book, yeah. book club. But it's, I, it's, really, yeah. I'm interested in that. Yeah. So, so that must be a process in itself then when you get home and you, you, you lay all these things out, go through the photos and have to spend some length of time actually typing it into your into your laptop is that is that oh, i understood that correctly or do you do that well, on the road in the I, I do it on the road i do it day to yeah. day so so like i'll come back to my guest house and i'll have photos that will remind me of the day i'll have um text and audio notes that remind me of the day i'll have my memory i'll have uh p- things that i've written down i'll have receipts um and sometimes i i'm i'm so tired i won't write my journal at all sometimes <laughs> i'll i'll write for five days uh, after one day but um yeah i try to keep it up on the road because it's fresh in my mind and then when i get home then that journal is is a much better memory trigger than if i'm just trying to to do something less organized mm, mm, i love that and that's interesting to me as well as i i, I try to do this but Sometimes do sometimes do a better job of it, a better job of it than others. And uh, Nancy has just asked a question. Nancy, are you in a position to to ask Ralph directly, or would you like me to read that out? Um, uh, Ralph, the quotes that you have at the beginning of each day—they're like from all over the place, like old ancient quotes. And then, how did you manage to to not only select them because they're appropriate for the day, but find them? Well, that is what I used, what's called a commonplace book. Uh, and a commonplace book is something that's most was most famously used during the Renaissance, back when books were really expensive, libraries were hard to come by. So if you were an aristocratic person, usually a man, but there are women who kept commonplace books too, then everything you read, you would, you would put your favorite quotes and thoughts into a commonplace book. Maybe the commonplace book would also have sketches and um, a daily diary uh, and we still have commonplace books of like uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Thomas Jefferson that basically you kept all of your learning in one place. Well, without knowing it, I've been keeping a commonplace book because when I was a young man, I felt like I was too dumb to remember all the cool stuff I'd read. So I started putting it into my computer files. And pretty soon those computer files got so big that I started breaking them down by categories. And after 25 years, when I started to write The Vagabond's Way, I realized that I could use 25 years worth of my reading, my accidental commonplace book, to draw on. And so using Scrivener, which is a, a nice application uh, that, I used to, that I've used to write my books, my, my three most recent books, I just organized everything by category. And so that I knew if, if this is going to be about walking, then here I have 20 pages of quotes about walking that really have moved me over the last several decades. And so I encourage people, including uh, to, to, to share all my students in, in Paris, uh, I encourage people to, to use a commonplace book because it's really a good way to collect your thoughts, not just if you're a writer, but just if you're a person who's trying to pay attention to life. Yeah, that's, that's sort of a long way of saying that all came out of my commonplace book. So, but are these other commonplace books accessible as well? Well, like mine isn't. I just have it on, in a bunch mm-hmm. of word files. Um, I, I, I think actually, like Ryan Holiday, uh, who wrote the Daily Stoic, which is a similar to the to the Vagabond's Way, same format. Um, he talks a lot about commonplace books, and so I think commonplace books are sort of undergoing a revival. But like most of those famous uh, arist- aristocratic. Um, Renaissance period people. I'm not sure if those still exist. Maybe they exist in library holdings or in museums. I know that I saw one of Thomas Jefferson's 
commonplace books in the Smithsonian of all places. Uh, but you don't even really need to, to do it in the manner of, uh, of a 17th century aristocrat. You can just start taking notes in files or in notebooks and use those to organize your own creative life or to um, to just sort of keep track of what cool things you've seen. It's sort of, it's, it's an equivalent of a journal, but instead of just writing about daily events and thoughts, you're feeding all of your intellectual readings and life into that just so you can keep track of it. Okay. So my quest, second question was on March 10th. This is the one that says the beaten path is beaten for good reasons. <laughs> like they always tell you to get off of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, like <laughs> every every recommendation you ever get. And I tried to do that too, but damn it, there's just some places you got to see, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I say, um, actually, this is a chapter I didn't know I was going to write until I started writing it. Yeah, yeah, I read Robert Moore's On Trails and he talks about how trails are literally created throughout human and animal history by those are the routes where everyone goes. Those are the most efficient. Those are the most interesting routes. And so I think I too am a fan of getting off the beaten path, but there's a reason why the beaten path is the beaten path. And if we're snobs about the beaten path, we're going to miss some of the coolest parts of an experience. And so I think, and and there's also a spiritual aspect to this that, um, you know, as spiritual people, we walk in the footsteps of people who have gone before us. But through that, we learn how to create our own path, right? Uh, and and so, especially early on a journey, I, I mentioned that in the March chapter because it's about the beginnings of journeys. Of course, when you go to Paris, you're going to go to the Notre Dame and the Eiffel Tower and all these other amazing, wonderful things. You're going to walk along the banks of the Seine, even though all the other tourists are doing it. It's through walking those paths that you get your your sense for the city, and then you can wander off the path. And so I did, I think in later chapters, I talk about getting off the beaten path, but I wanted to establish first that the beaten path is beaten for a reason. And yeah, don't be a snob about it. Give yourself permission to do on the beaten path stuff. And in some places you won't have time to do anything but on the beaten path stuff. Um, but it's um, it's beaten for a reason and, and there's no shame in going where everybody else goes. Kim says she's got like something to add about um, culture shock and restaurants. Uh, Kim, are you in a position to put your mic on and speak to sure. us? Sure. Thank you. Hello. And I and what you just told Roth and the fact that it was Henry Rollins, that just that's even the even makes it better. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add a couple of things. We were talking about the culture shock. I did um I lived in Shanghai, China for three years. My first year was as an English teacher. <laughs> so um and it is. It was very tough. I was very, you know, had anxiety, even though I was very happy to be there. Um, and part of it was, even though I'd studied a little bit of Chinese ahead of time, just like, can I go and order something at a restaurant and whatever? And so I admit that during my first month there, I did spend quite a bit of uh, time at uh, McDonald's and KFC. <laughs> they had, you know, pictures you could point to and everything. And they really, they do have a different menu, especially, you know, the McDonald's. They had some extra sides and stuff that were actually were really good. And I did go one time to a pizza hut just because I had to it, just see what they had. And they had this amazing, huge menu of pizza, but also so many other things. And so that was actually a really, really cool experience um, to do. And, um, you know, I ended up really liking it there and stayed another couple of years um, and only came home, you know, a little bit earlier than plan. I thought maybe I'll be there four or five years. Um, but just my dad was having, you know, a few health issues. Otherwise I would have stayed. And even though there were things that bugged the heck out of me sometimes, there are things at home that do that too. <laughs> so sure. um, yeah. 
So I really, I enjoyed that part and you talking about Korea more in the, in the book as well. So. Well, you, you're what you said remind me of China. I actually have been to the Pizza Hut in Beijing. I took my parents there, and I, and I have an excuse because Pizza Hut came from Wichita, Kansas. The first Pizza Hut was in the same as my hometown, so <laughs> I uh, so I took my parents there in 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 Korea and in China actually. But then also um, when I was in China for the first time, I realized I, I, they didn't even in menus they don't have a picture on them. I just pointed at the Chinese characters, and so it was sort of like playing roulette. I would just they would just take out what I pointed to, and the first time it was like this delicious chicken dish. And so then, and the next time it was like, it tasted like the, the lower part of the intestine. It was horrible, right? So it was, it was an exciting way to experience the place because there were no pictures. There was just this language that I couldn't read. And so it was just like, I'm going to roll the dice and see what comes out. And that was a fun way. I think, I think the, the, the service, the people who were waiting on me got a kick out of it too, because it's like, why did this guy order a plate full of chicken feet? Well, I guess that's what he wants <laughs> because literally I got a plate full of chicken feet and I wasn't really sure how to eat them. I actually really liked chicken feet because I love the skin of <laughs> fried chicken. Interesting. So that's I, pretty much all it is. I but, should try uh, harder sometime next time. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we did that a couple of times too. Just say, let's check it out. And, and it's, it was a great way to experience it and try something new. Um, there was another question from uh, Jeremy, which I assume he wants me to, sorry, Patrick, not Jeremy, um, which I assume he wants me to, to read out because, no, are you, Patrick, you're right to ask that. Sorry, I'm getting you confused with someone else. Are you okay to, to unmute yourself and ask that question yourself? It's always nice to hear it in your voice. And, sure, and, sure. Uh, yeah. Hey, Rob, how are you doing today? <clears throat> hey, Patrick. Hey, so I got a question. My, my wife and I are really toddlers in our travel journeys. Um, just, we've, we've grown our kids up and now we've got some time to spend um, traveling. Um, and we're actually going to be taking a trip this summer um, and spending some time with some friends in uh, Czech Budovice in, uh, in Czech, the Czech Republic. Okay. Spend about three days there, take the overnight train to Rome, uh, spend one night there, catch a boat, do a 10-day Greek Isle cruise. Um, but my, here's my question. I don't want to do a whole bunch of online research about these places. I really want to try to give the, the, the trip a chance to unfold. But at the same time, we've got a limited amount of time in some of the places we're going to be. So I, I don't necessarily want to just track down tourist attractions. I want to kind of experience some of the places we go and the culture of it. But I don't want to do a lot of research. So how do you balance that? Well, I, I'm a fan of research as long as it doesn't ruin your trip, right? It's almost like studying for a test. You know, when, when you study for a test in college or whenever you're in school, if you bring a cheat sheet, you're sort of cheating yourself out of the experience. So this is what I like. This is my analogy for travel. I like to study about the trip to my heart's content and then just sort of set that information aside. And it's interesting how internalized I have a sense for the main attractions of a place. Then when I get there, I can center myself in a place and then wander around. And I'm a big fan of the phrase, walk until your day becomes interesting. And I think that's been mentioned on this book club before, that um, when you're in the place, you might be in a place where everybody goes, in a place in the Czech Republic. And that's fine. Again, we've talked about the, the beaten trail is fine. But then just walk in any direction. Don't get too lost, you know, write down where you were or take a picture of where you were and then just start walking because as you walk away from those tourist districts, you're going to be walking into the local color of the neighborhood. You're going to be walking away from crowds of tourists and into places where people are walking their dogs or playing with their kids or, 
or playing backgammon on the table outside the restaurants or waiting in line for the butcher. And it, those sorts of daily life experiences, especially in foreign cult, cult, countries, are going to be a great window into a place. And what happens is the further you get away from the tourist trail, the more interest people will take in you, especially in places where you don't look like normal people. Maybe in Europe, you'll you'll sort of look like folks in the Czech Republic or wherever. But when you're when when you're the most interesting that thing that's happened in the day, it's like, well, here's this pasty guy walking through our neighborhood. Let's see what he wants. You know, that's when the that's when the fun starts to happen. And that's when it's really important to give yourself time for that kind of thing to happen. Like if you have four hours in an afternoon, maybe plan an hour of activities and three hours of wandering around. Because when, once you have, and sometimes it's, it's as simple as just sitting on the square and somebody strikes up a conversation, you don't speak their language, you find out you have 30 leg, words of English in common and a little bit of sign language. And pretty soon you're invited to a wedding as I was in India or in lunch to lunch as I was in Myanmar. And it's just a matter of, of having faith that good things will happen if you if you walk until your day becomes interesting. Thank you. You bet. So to 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 sort of sort of riff off that a little bit more, Rolf. Um that would that 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 does sound a bit scary, or that could be scary, couldn't it? With the yeah. advice you've just given there, walk off the tourist track and just keep walking until until you find something. You know, some people would say that sounds like really bad advice. <laughs> that sounds really dangerous. And you actually speak about this in the chapter, don't you? Well, yeah. And and if there's something I'm not addressing directly, Luke, feel free to bring it up. But I think use common sense. Just because you're walking until your day becomes interesting doesn't mean you walk into the middle of a gang fight, you know, or <laughs> that you walk into someplace, some sketchy situation. In all situations, I think your instincts are pretty good. Um, and, and of course, you, you don't want your culture shock instincts. Sometimes we feel scared in foreign places because it is culture shock rather than common sense. But oftentimes, especially in, in, in modern cities, especially like the cities of Europe, you walk around and yeah, you're just in a neighborhood instead of a tourist neighborhood. But this this holds true. I've done the same things in, in Bangkok um, mm. and all over Asia. Asia is a favorite place to travel. Um, I've wandered around in, in, in like beach communities of Mozambique. And that that's fine, you know, especially during the day, um, people are just going to take an interest in you. Uh, yeah. And I think safety is just the rule rather than the exception. Places are pretty safe and, and friendly. It's when you're walking until the day becomes interesting and you're drunk and it's four in the morning and you're in a sketchy neighborhood. That's when that's when it's a bad idea. Otherwise, yes. however, I think that it will, and it's something you get better at the more you do it. Like on your, the first time you do it, it might seem a little intimidating. And so maybe you walk for five blocks and just sort of check things out mm -hmm. and then you go back to the tourist zone and that's fine. There's no there's no right or wrong way to do this. But the, the more you become experienced as a traveler, I think the more you get instincts for um, what might be a good place to go and what not, what not, what not, might not be. And actually meeting local people makes more sense off the tourist trail because usually the people you meet on the tourist trail want to sell you souvenirs or want to take you into their uncle's um, carpet shop or whatever. Whereas maybe a mile away from that tourist zone, they just want to talk, you know, they just want to find out what you're doing there and show you their favorite restaurant or uh, bring yeah. you to their, to their uncle's, you know, wedding or their nephew's baptism or whatever. And it's a really fun way to surprise yourself with experiences you didn't realize you're going to have. I know. And I, actually, I asked that question to be a bit devil's advocate, actually, because I do believe that wholeheartedly myself. And something yeah. you said in the book, which, which is so obvious, but yet I haven't heard before when I think about it. And you just said, don't take valuable stuff with you. <laughs> you know, yeah. 
take, leave your credit cards in the hotel room, in the safe, leave your passport in the hotel room, take your cell phone, you've got a camera on there. If you go in somewhere you're not totally sure about, don't take your one with the giant lens that was worth $200 or whatever, $2,000 or whatever. You know, if you're unsure and it's going to make you feel better about it, leave that stuff at home. You can always go back with the camera the next day if there's a great photograph you want to take or whatever. But just, just to, to give, make yourself feel a bit comfortable, sometimes things like that help, don't they? Yeah, don't bring anything to steal. Put put a little bit of money in your sock and, and have a nice day. <laughs> I mean, I, I know that makes it sound like it's going to happen, but it's really about saying it's making me feel more confident to walk through this neighbourhood. I don't know if I'm not standing out with a great big camera around my neck and a golden watch on my wrist and whatever else I might be. Gina, I think you have a question there, don't you? Would you are you in a position to unmute yourself and speak to us yes. directly? Wonderful. I am. Hi, Hello. hi, Ralph. I had a question. Um, so next week comes to a two-year anniversary that our my husband and I have um, kind of inverted our life and gave away everything we owned and hit the road. And we have a, a 18-year-old son that graduated. So we said, okay, we're going to we're going to travel for a year, but it ended up turning into two years. And so we don't own a home anymore, but we travel all over the world. And this most recent trip back from Spain, I found myself feeling like I hit a wall. And I'm just wondering if in the early days of your travels, did you ever find yourself feeling like you needed stillness? I mean, we try to find pockets of that, you know, a month at a time in different places because we house sit like all over the all over the world. But I'm just wondering, is that a common process of the travel lifestyle that you go through these ebbs and flows? Um, we're not ready to settle down in one place. In fact, it feels like a very foreign concept, quite honestly, to like set up shop in one place. But we also are just kind of like almost tired in a way. Well, I'm I'm so attuned to the reality of of burnout and the need for stillness that later chapters of the book have a, a touch on that a lot. Um, the March is about getting started. Those later chapters acknowledge that um, travel burnout, feeling exhausted, wanting to stay in one place for a while is a thing. You you sort of balance that passion for new places with sort of the desire to be still and do nothing, or desire to be still and get to know a place better. And I think everything is on the table. I think sometimes we assume travel is about constant newness because that sort of how travel is presented to us by marketing experts. And transcendentness is great, but I think sometimes finding a place that you love or finding a place just where you're sort of exhausted and you want to stick around for a while, that counts too. And even as you're sitting still, you are a traveler in, in that place that you can slow down. Like when I wrote my first book, Vagabonding, I was in a town called Renong, Thailand. And I was I sat still there for eight or nine months to write the book, but I was a traveler. Every day I went out to get food. Every day I talked to a neighbor. Um, every time I met another traveler at the hotel I was living in, and that was travel too. So for sure, for sure, a stillness, even actually stillness, stillness is actually a, a spiritual concept in very different religious traditions. And so I think it's a hum, there's a human need for stillness amidst the constant newness. And I think if you talk to any long-term travel, they'll realize that they, everybody hits a burnout phase at some point. And it's not a bad thing. They just need to realize this, slow down, stick in one place, or even go home, you know, if you have one, apparently you don't. But um, go home if you need to, because it's, it's not like quitting. You're just uh, deepening your travels in different ways. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including how to sign up for the next Vagabond's Way online book club in October, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.